BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And this week, we are delighted to have with us the person who's been covering presidential administrations for NPR since 2014. White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us. As many listeners may know, she got her start covering politics in Sacramento with... KQED. She did indeed. She's covered three very different presidents, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. We'll be talking with her about the evolution of her beat, what she sees on the horizon between now and November, and we'll hear about her new children's book. It's called Claire and the Eager Speaker. To be honest, Marisa, when I first heard that title, I thought, is that Nancy Pelosi? Which speaker are we talking about here? <laughs> uh, but we'll talk with Tam about that much more. But first, uh, Boy, uh, California has been through a very uh, historic and nasty Not quite through. Not quite (laughs) through. through. That's right. Yeah, but uh, we really dodged a bullet. Uh, The governor politically dodged a bullet on Tuesday night. The uh, Cal ISO sent out a text, the administration, urging people to conserve. And lo and behold, people did. And you could see, looking at the graph, how close we were to Mm -hmm. getting to those rolling blackouts. And we hit a record. I mean, that was the most power ever used. Um, And of course, those of us who have been covering politics for a minute, remember Gray Davis and what rolling blackouts did to his political career. So I think, you know, I I do think you have to give regulators and the governor some credit. Uh, You know, I think the communication um, and and the urging of the public did work. We did see a couple of uh, cities in the Bay Area mistakenly <laughs> institute some blackouts, um, but that was not the intention. And I do think that this was a very big concern. Obviously, the safety concerns, the, the logistical, the actual on the ground reasons. But to your point, politically, I mean, this is an election year um, and people remember when their lights go out. They do. And of course, uh, there were some, you can be sure there were a lot of press releases and tweets all teed up and ready to go if the lights went out. Uh, the Republicans didn't even wait for the lights to go really out. They didn't really wait. Uh, Jessica Milan Patterson. <laughs> head of the California GOP, saying, oh, so we're all supposed to buy electric vehicles, but there's nowhere to charge them. Uh, you know, sort of uh, tongue-in-cheek a little bit. Not not and, and, you know, the, the thing is, there is a, there's a reason the heat is breaking records. I mean, climate change. And it's really, it is obviously a political divide in Washington as well as to a certain extent in California, although we've kind of all figured out that it's real and we're trying to do what we can as a state. But... Uh, you know, uh, well, you see sort of the way and this is not I mean, we complain about this on the show before, but the way often the national press covers California. Um, and I think that there's this sense that because we've made a lot of news recently around climate action and and setting some very aggressive goals for the coming years, that this is about renewable energy itself. And, you know, we should say only nine, 10 percent of 
power was coming over the last few nights from renewables. Most of it's from natural gas. Um, and so we, you know, it is a transition and it's a challenging thing. And I think that this is obviously going to stick in the governor's mind as he works on this climate change stuff moving forward. Absolutely. And there's still, as you say, we're not out of it yet. Uh, there's a flex alert until nine o'clock tonight. So and, you know, it's still early September. I mean, right. uh, so not to mention all the wildfires and the other potential problems there. Um, speaking of Governor Newsom, um, he got some unwanted attention on Labor Day from President Biden. Uh, there's a bill on his desk, which he is uh, seems to be opposed to signing, which would make it easier for farm workers to unionize and vote in union elections. And the President Biden uh, kind of weighed in. And said, kind of weighed in. Yeah, yeah came I came out like, and said, hey, I support you gotta this. sign that thing. I support that thing. Right. And it's kind of interesting because, of course, uh, you know, Governor Newsom reportedly not happy uh, being pressured by the president, as well as Nancy Pelosi, we should say, and others. Uh, but um, on Labor Day, especially on Labor Day. Yeah. But and you know, he's also been a little MIA for the press this week and getting some pushback on that uh, access. Reporters want to be asking the governor's questions when we are facing this extreme and unprecedented heat wave. Um, and there's been a little dust up between the Capitol Press Corps and the governor, which uh, because, you know, he said he didn't have time for it. And then the next day he went to Kara Swisher's code conference in L.A. They didn't tell the media that he was going to yeah, be there. It's a, a whole thing. Unhappy- reporters. But, you know, just back, coming back to the Biden thing, you know, here's a governor who has weighed in uh, on politics in Florida and Texas, but he doesn't like uh, the president of his own party right. kind of, you know, saying where he stands on a particular issue. So a little bit of a double standard there and thin skin. In politics? I guess I'm we could say. shocked. Um, but it is interesting, Scott, because, you know, I think the governor was also peeved at, at at the president because he kind of stole his thunder because Newsom did sign a very big bill, another controversial uh, bill over the Labor Day weekend. This is AB 257, which essentially creates a new council to oversee fast food franchises and be empowered to set minimum standards for wages and hours, working conditions like the farm worker unionization bill. This is being watched nationally. Um, the fast food industry is very worried that it could set a model and they've already Filed, filed to papers, have a referendum, yeah. yeah. So that bill could, or that good law could be put on hold until after, I guess, twenty twenty four. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but uh, yeah, a right, we'll, lot on Newsom's desk right now. A lot on his watch. desk, yeah. and we're going to talk with our guest about that in a moment. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll can, we're going to have a conversation with White House correspondent for NPR, Tamara Keith. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, 
curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we are thrilled to have with us a KQED alum, NPR's White House correspondent, Tamara Keith. You hear her from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. She's on the road with presidents or on the campaign trail. She's covered three very different presidents, Obama, Trump, and Biden. In fact, she covered two of them just yesterday. She's here to talk politics and also to tell us about her new children's book. Tamara Keith, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, we want to ask you, Maurice and I were just chatting about uh, the president sort of uh, poking Gavin Newsom a little bit over this bill that's on his desk. And I'm wondering, you know, given how how his national profile has been rising and he's sort of in, you know, sort of like, you know, treading on Biden territory, uh, indicating perhaps he's interested in being president. To what extent do you think that Biden's message about that bill on Labor Day was, you know, you know, just kind of a poke back? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I maybe I am naive to not read too much into things, but when the president of the United States is talking about labor issues on Labor Day, he's <laughs> going to take labor's side. Uh, and uh, and President Biden in particular, someone who it doesn't have to be Labor Day. He doesn't have to be standing in front of a bunch of union people, but often he is anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he he has a sort of more old school view of what uh, labor means, what the labor movement means and, and what it looks like. But he's obviously um, coming around to uh, the more modern labor movement that's moving to places like Starbucks and Amazon, too. Um, and, and he always sides with labor. Well, it's a moment for labor. I mean, really, like you mentioned, Starbucks, Amazon, you know, these companies that have long fought unionization efforts are not being as successful fighting them. And I think Democrats led by Biden have really embraced that. I mean, are you at all surprised watching this from afar that the governor seems a little more reticent? (laughs) But the the governor has sort of different interests mm-hmm. yes then then maybe um, doesn't then <laughs> it's a that's chess the million game. dollar question isn't it definitely a chess game <laughs> And and a more granular view of what this would mean. I I mean, like the White House is not looking into exactly what this would mean on the ground in California. No, totally. And and he does need to worry about agriculture and whether they survive. For sure. And your point point is well taken about, you know, hey, Biden and labor are hand in glove. But, you know, to what extent do you think the White House really thinks about seeing Newsom sort of weighing in, in in a way that, you know, kind of stepping what some see is stepping into a vacuum. Do you think, uh, do you, what do you hear from the White House on that? I have, I have honestly never had a conversation with the White House about Gavin Newsom. Um, or, uh, what I kind mean, of Californian are you, Tamara? Well, I know, I apologize. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that um, this White House 
is spends a lot of its time saying this president is running for re-election. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Um, that's that's more of what they deal with. Um, you know, thinking about who's in the wings. I, I I think their goal is to make sure that no one jumps off the wings um, okay. and and jumps into center stage uh, as long as Joe Biden is uh, planning to run. And, uh, you know, like he hasn't filed paperwork. Right. Uh, no, no one has. Um, and and there's a little bit of a, a game of chicken going on in national politics because, um, you know, there's some very big people who yeah, um, we know. are blocking the sun in their parties. <laughs> and if one runs, then the other one might run mm. or vice versa or not at all. Or, you know, there's just some planets circling. Yeah. You're referring to Trump and Biden, I assume. Um, but let's talk yes. about our Californian, though, in the White House, Kamala Harris, who, <laughs> Not you quite know, in the White House. Well, yeah. <laughs> eyes on it. Um You know, I think there's been a lot of speculation from afar about what the relationship is like with Biden, what her kind of plans are, if she's, you know, going to run, if he doesn't. What's your just take on, like, how she's doing in D.C. and what I I feel like we don't hear a lot about her, but she's clearly doing events all the time and stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, really difficult to be a vice president. Uh, You might remember we didn't hear a lot about Joe Biden. When he was vice president, except when he you know stepped in it and got ahead of the president on <laughs> on on supporting gay marriage, uh, Joe Biden was not. People weren't thinking about him a lot. He went to a lot of funerals, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the vice president Kamala Harris is obviously a historic figure, um, and and with that comes like all the added pressure. Um, she's also a vice president to the oldest person to ever be president of the United States. Um, and that is also um, puts a little bit more of a spotlight on her. Mm-hmm. Also, frankly, she's just more motivating to Republicans as as a bad guy to put out there as mm-hmm. like, you know, she you'll you'll see her in ads more than you'll see Joe Biden. You'll see Nancy Pelosi in ads more yeah. than you'll see Joe Biden. Yeah, there is a sense that, you know, I think Biden, of course, famously had lunch every week with Obama. Yes. I think Kamala Harris was hoping to do, and I think maybe did have lunch once or twice, <laughs> <laughs> and then not so much anymore. You know, what is your sense of that relationship that they have? Yeah. Yesterday, um, we, uh, at the White House, there was the the portrait unveiling for the mm-hmm. Obamas. And President Biden said something that he has said before, but that they came into the White House and came into the administration and and when they left they were they were family they weren't just friends they were family um and and biden was very he was very um intentional about saying he was going to have lunch with harris every week just like biden just like he did with obama the scheduling has not really worked out that way um there doesn't at least from the outside, seem to be the same warmth and family ties. But also, you're a year and a half in. Right. Um, I don't know that Obama and Biden were really truly family at the beginning. It's not even clear whether, you know, they just say that they're family or whether they truly are like family yeah. now. Yeah. I think there was, uh, you know, I think Obama kind of saw him as a bit of a blowhard when they were both in the Senate. A little well, bit. yeah. A gas bag, you know, which, you know, is fair. Well, <laughs> 
he, he's been more disciplined as president, uh, but only sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you mentioned that ceremony with the Bidens and Obamas. Um, tell us just what the vibe was like there. This is the first time in over a decade that this type of unveiling has happened with because Trump skipped it, essentially. Um and, you know, Michelle Obama made some comments about the peaceful transition of power and how important that was, which grabbed attention. But is there anything else we should have, you know, should know about the event? Well, one thing that has been, was fascinating to me is that in the lead up to the event, I was trying to get to the bottom of why it didn't happen during the Trump years. And it is remarkable how little anyone wanted to talk about <laughs> the actual reality of the hmm. thing. The Trump people didn't respond. The Obama people were like, well... We can confirm, you know, it took me like five back and forths to get to this much. <laughs> we can confirm that Trump didn't invite him. You ask the Historical Association, which is in charge of commissioning the paintings, and they say, well, the paintings have been done for some time, but there's no rule about when these ceremonies are supposed to happen. So the like, were the paintings truly done during the Trump years? Did Obama not want to come? Did Trump not want the person who he accused of tapping his phones to come? Who the heck really, truly knows? Um, but I think that there is an argument that uh, both the Obamas and the Bidens were much happier that it happened now. And it was, you know, it was one of those like old home days where um, just every anyone who had worked in the administration was back and and was in the East Room. And it was this very warm, lovely event where they they tried to keep the former guy out of it. Um and yet, yes, Mrs. Obama became, or yeah, Mrs. Obama is the one who brought the idea of, you know, you leave when your time is done. <laughs> and, you don't linger. And, and then all you have left is your hard work and these paintings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is. A familiar voice and face, for that matter, NPR's White House correspondent, Tamara Keith, who, of course, is also a regular on the PBS NewsHour, where she talks politics every Monday with Amy Walter. Um, you know, we talked about, you were talking about uh, sort of the specter of Trump. And, uh, you know, obviously, since the raid on Mar-a-Lago and all that the Justice Department is looking into right now, President Biden, it's kind of been enabled him to pivot away from some other things that he'd rather not be talking about. He gave that soul of the nation speech, uh, framing it as MAGA Republicans versus the rest of the country. What are your thoughts about that speech? It took a lot of flack uh, from the media in some circles. Uh, what, what was your take on it and how effective do you think it'll be? Well, if you get past the staging uh, and and the red backdrop, the dark Brandon backdrop, you the mean? dark Brandon backdrop. <laughs> if you get past that, um, this is clearly something that the president is passionate about and something that he worries about. We know that he had had a meeting not long ago, uh, sort of an off the record meeting with uh, several uh, historians, presidential historians who raised alarms about the state of democracy. Um, and this was though the White House would say, oh, this wasn't about the midterms. Oh, it was 100% about the midterms. And part of it was about trying to take these sort of disparate ideas, like people on the left and and also independents are really freaked out about what's happening with access to reproductive care and abortion rights. Uh, people are concerned that there could be further erosion uh, of things like gay marriage or interracial marriage or or some of these other um, ideas that 
were tied up in uh, in the court rulings that have now been overturned by the Dobbs decision um, or, or put aside by the Dobbs decision. And also there are people who are worried about uh, erosion of voting rights access and and all of these big ideas. And Biden was trying to take all of these seemingly disparate things and say it's part of all one thing, which is that there is extremism on the other side. And so you need to choose between extremism and us, <laughs> even if, you know, us being him, Democrats running for Congress. So even if you don't agree with everything that Democrats have done, he's saying, look at the alternative. And part of that is just trying to set up instead of it being a referendum on how people feel about Joe Biden or how they feel about inflation or Kamala Harris or gas prices or immigration, trying to make it a choice between, hey, there's some candidates who actually um, marched on the Capitol on January 6th. And then there are some people that you may feel ambivalent about. Choose. Right. <laughs> well, and I do think, I mean, obviously there's the politics, but this is a real issue, right? When we talk about our democracy and the fact that there are people running all over the country who have promised to to overturn election results, right? I mean, right. it's not, this isn't just hyperbole. Um, I know you talked to now Congressman Pat Ryan about his successful congressional campaign. This was a special district, or a special election in New York. He flipped a seat. He yep. really leaned into the abortion message, but also this extremism, right? That he right. tied those together. I'm just curious, like, Talking to him and thinking about this, like how potent you see that, because we have seen polling change. I mean, people are actually listing democracy as a top issue, which is not something I've ever seen in my lifetime. Right. And digging into the guts of the the poll where it said that the number one issue that, you know, the, the more people list democracy as their top issue than anything else. If you get into the guts of that, you know, like they separated out inflation and the economy and jobs. And so if you were to add right. all of those but up, the fact that those it's even just, on the list, right? Even the, yes. Even the, the fact that people are actively talking about the state of American democracy is a dramatic shift. Mm -hmm. And 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 Congressman Ryan was was saying, like, you know, Democrats should not triangulate and, you know, poll test. And and of course, everybody says they don't poll test. Um, <laughs> Democrats should not, you know, like be afraid of leaning into this abortion issue or leaning into the idea of extremism being on the ballot. Um, because there are enough people, including moderates, including independent voters and, and, you know, a handful of Republicans who who consider those things to be a real issue. Yeah. I will say more broadly when talking about, oh, my gosh, our democracy is in decline. There are a lot of Republicans who feel that American democracy is in decline. Absolutely. For Although different they, reasons. They, yeah, for di very different for reasons. vastly different yeah. reasons. But they believe that, uh, you know, the, the, the quote unquote woke left is undermining American democracy. Yeah, yeah. And it is a strongly held belief. Yeah. Well, uh, and so much of this is about who's going to control the House, uh, which is, uh, you know, very much in the balance right now. And uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, is the speaker and may or may not stick around, even if the Democrats uh, win control or keep control. But what are your thoughts about Kevin McCarthy? We've seen, you know, both Pat Ryan and Paul Ryan, rather, and John Boehner, you know, unable to really yeah, you know, heard the cats of the Republican yeah. delegation. What do you see as the obstacles facing Kevin McCarthy if uh, the Republicans get the majority? If Republicans get the majority and they end up with a very narrow majority, 
Kevin McCarthy is going to have a big problem uh, (laughs) because he, you know, in particular, his leadership style, but just in general, anyone who tries to lead the Republican conference when it is a wide range of Republicans that includes Marjorie Taylor Greene, but also there are a few still moderate Republicans left. Um, and and you actually don't have a governing majority if uh, the the I mean, Tea Party is not the right word anymore, but the Freedom Caucus folks, if those people are in charge, they they they're the people who need a release valve to to sort of be able to vote no on everything. And then they count on the more moderate members uh, who at times end up teaming up with Democrats to actually make governing happen. But if you don't have the numbers to lose your mem- lose a few members, then it's going to be really hard to, you know, do things like keep the government funded. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the Democrats, because maybe they care more about government, always step up. You know, I remember when the the, 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 the solvency crisis, the mortgage crisis, you know, it was Hank Paulson, right. the Treasury Secretary. The Bush administration went to Nancy Pelosi and begged her. And, yeah, the, the Democrats yeah. came up with the votes they needed to pass that. But, Tim, right, but how does yeah. McCarthy stay speaker yeah. if he has to move forward with governing with not the full without his full caucus or without a majority of his caucus. Yeah. If he's if he's governing with Democrats, he's not going to be the speaker. Totally. I mean, what about McConnell? Like, it, obviously, the Senate is a different animal always, but we are seeing more, as the president would put it, I guess, MAGA Republicans, mm-hmm. you know, in these races. And it seems like even regardless of whether he's the minority leader or majority leader, like he's facing a similar kind of challenge that isn't always the case in the Senate. Well, and fascinating to see remarks from Donald Trump on some talk radio show saying, yeah, yeah, if McCarthy, you know, if if McConnell ends up, you know, if if Republicans win the Senate and McConnell ends up being the leader, that won't last for very long. Mm. Like we're we're going to dispense with him. Yeah. Basically. I mean, um, I so I, I mean, like Trump does not like Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell stood up to him after January yeah, 6th. I'm sure it's very mutual. Uh, I'm sure it is quite useful. <laughs> and and that's a that's a challenge when you have, in theory, potentially more Trumpy and Trump endorsed candidates coming into the Senate. Though the reality is that They're many not, of those it's not candidates good for most of them. No, many of those candidates are going to need Mitch McConnell's money to win their races. Mm. And uh, so far, former President Trump has not been bankrolling the candidates he's endorsed. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your book, Claire and the Eager Speaker. And I, I, I kid you not, I, when I saw that, I thought, which, which is the Speaker of the House? But it's no, it's like an Alexa speaker, a smart speaker. Um, no brand name. No brand name, right? Um, but, you know, tell us, you know, you wrote this with your son. Um, tell us uh, how, how it came about, why you decided to write it, and what role did your son have? Yeah, so so this like this started probably when he was five years old, and we had a smart speaker. We still do. We still ask our smart speaker to play NPR, as all of you should as well. Um, or your and, local radio station. Yes, your play your local. <laughs> well, no, it'll choose your local radio station. Oh, it will. You say NPR, oh, it'll see, play your local radio speaker. station. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it also had a shopping list function, and he apparently was putting things on the shopping list. And eventually, I I like go to look at the shopping list to go shopping. And it's got poop, 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 <laughs> cookies, more cookies, cookies, cookies. 
And then an illicit substance that starts with the letter C that must have been the speaker mishearing cookies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, I was like, you know what? This would be really funny. Like if we did a we wrote a story about what happened if all these things got ordered. Um, and so Davis and I really did truly work on it together. Um, he came up with the name of the main character. He wanted it to be a girl. He came up with all of the things, all of the very fun things that she put on her shopping list, including Ooh. a llama and a, a Tesla a with don't Tesla. ruin pink it. Tesla Pam. with rocket. Yeah. Spoiler <laughs> alert! Yeah, right. Well, I want to ask you this though, because your son's ten. He's I think a year older than mine, and yeah. um, you have a second child too. And I made the mistake of bringing my then five-month-old to the 2016 convention to cover it because I was breastfeeding and I, you know. But I oh always, God. I remember seeing you on the trail that year and thinking, you know, your kid's so little and you had a second. I mean, what's it been like just juggling this job with motherhood? You know, it's never easy. Um, and uh, I hope that my kids like me when when they're older. I, I will say that, you know, this this little book that Davis and I worked on was a really great escape from the, the 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 grind of politics. It was an opportunity for us to sit together and write something and then edit and edit and edit some more. He's learned so many valuable lessons about um, rejection and editing. Brevity. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, what I will say is that during the campaign in 2016, when Davis was very little and Gibson was not yet an idea yet, um, I was having a really rough 10 days on the campaign trail and I went to a Target and I bought the Very Hungry Caterpillar uh, in in board book and we uh, and Davis had a copy at home and we started FaceTiming every night mm. reading that book over FaceTime. Sweet. That's amazing. And yeah. so like that connection was amazing. It, maybe it was better for me than it was for him. But by the end of the campaign on the, you know, Clinton campaign bus, we had like multiple moms dialing up their kids on FaceTime while I read The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Nice. Real quick, because we got to go, uh, you play on the uh, Bad News Babes, a uh, women journalist softball team with Amy Walter and others. You play against women members of Congress. One name. Who's the, who's the best kick-butt congresswoman on, on the other side? I will just say Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York. She is the pitcher from the other team, and she is Intense. Wow. I can see that. I've talked to her. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Don't get her started right. on Al Franken. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tamara Keith, NPR White House correspondent. Thanks so much for joining us. Go out and buy the book as well. It's available on, you know, that place that has smart speakers. <laughs> okay. All right. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.